Thank you, Pastor Chris. Um, it's good to hear about <clears throat> how we together can do more in the mission of Jesus and the gospel, the good news about Jesus and who he is and what he means to us and how he changes our lives, which we'll get into a little bit more. Uh, Chris did invite you to stack chairs next time we needed to stack, so after the service, we're going to let you have a part in that already. So uh, thank you, Chris, for that invitation. Um, we do need to stack chairs after the service. We'll, we'll remind you at the end. But um, also, uh, if you don't know, we, we uh, a way to give towards all these things that we do together in the back there and uh, or online or, or whatever else. Um, there are a lot of ways for us to do together better than what we can do alone, although we do do things alone as well as we go off into our week. So why don't we pray and then get into the word. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the, uh, the reminder week after week of who you are and what you mean to us and the invitation every week to be involved in your mission around the world around the corner and around the world. And we pray that as we look into Mark again this morning that you would uh, challenge us, that you would uh, speak into our, in our hearts and lives, that you'd make us aware of what you want our response to be, uh, that you'd invite us, and that we would be encouraged and excited and in wonder about all that you are. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, my wife and I have moved many times over our nearly 25 years. Next year will be 25 years we've been married. And we've moved a lot over those years. And, and whenever we settle into a new house, we always find projects that will help make our house a home. And if you've ever done renovations before, you know that these projects begin to get bigger and bigger as you get going in them. I uh, had several places where we would say, okay, we're going to, to do the floor. And since we're doing the floor, now's a good time to take out that closet that just interrupts the room. Well, when we take out the closet, that makes a hole in the ceiling. And because it's you know, one of those stippled ceilings, we've got to scrape the ceilings, make the patches, and then patch that. And since we're doing the ceiling, then maybe we should do some lighting. And you know how this goes, right? Those of you who have done renovations. It just keeps going and going and going. Well, when we moved here, I had lots of experience from previous moves, uh, had lots of help in this renovation that we were doing. Uh, when it came time to put up drywall and to mud and to tape, this is the job that everybody loves, right? Um, I was anxious to just get it done. And as I was just about to get started, Cheryl reminded me, you're gonna put up plastic, right? You're gonna cover the, the furniture, you're gonna cover the, entrances and exits so that not the dust well, doesn't get everywhere. I said, oh yeah, I was just about to do it. <laughs> I hate doing plastic, I don't know why. I just want to get going on the project. But I said, yep, yep, I'm gonna do it. So I made sure, I, I got it, I understood what she said. So I put up um, tarps over the, or plastic over the, the doorways, made sure that dust couldn't get everywhere in the house, and I got to work. Well, after however long it took to, uh, to, to do all the mudding and the taping and the, and the sanding, I was excited to show off my work to my wife. I brought her in, and, and for some reason, 
all she could see was the furniture covered with dust. I had put plastic up for the rest of the house, but the, the stuff in the room, I, for some reason, did not get the message, and it was all covered in dust. Turns out I really didn't understand what my wife was trying to communicate to me in that moment. And I think that I'm not alone. I imagine there's some of you who have done similar things where your spouse or someone told you something. Uh, I, I know that there's a lot of times when a group of people get together and they, can, they, they talk about what they're going to do, they, they're excited, they, they all understand, high fives, yeah, we all get it, let's go. And no sooner, no sooner do you leave than someone's doing something totally opposite than what you thought we all agreed to. Well, in today's passage, we have a situation that's kind of like this. Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is, and Peter proclaims, you are the Messiah. And we're like, yes, he gets it. But then, just a few moments later, he opens his mouth and it turns out he didn't really understand what he understood that those words to mean and what Jesus understood those words to mean were two different things. So I wanna look at the passage this morning in Mark 8, 27 through 33. It will come up on the screens, but if you can have it open in front of you, it's always good to be looking at it as we move through. So Mark 8, 27 through 33 says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do you say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is a climactic passage in Mark because in this passage, Jesus comes right out and asks the question that Mark has been bringing up to his readers to wrestle with over and over again. Who do you say I am? The disciples, they've been following Jesus for quite a while by now. They've experienced his uniquely authoritative teaching, his authority over nature, over demons, and his claims that put him on par with God. Now, as they're on their way from Bethsaida, it's on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, they're going about 25 miles north to Caesarea Philippi, about a day's journey. On the journey, he stops and he asks a question about his identity. Who do people say I am? It's quite an interesting question, actually, because it makes you think, does Jesus not know who he is? Is he having an identity crisis? I'm kind of wondering who I am. What, what, what do people say? And Another unusual thing is that usually rabbis would answer their disciples' questions. They wouldn't be the ones asking questions. But Jesus is not the typical rabbi, and he knows exactly who he is. And he knows that who he is is so important. It's the central 
understanding him is central to understanding the kingdom of God and being a part of the kingdom of God. And notice he doesn't come right out and ask the disciples, who do you say I am, without preparing them. He first asks, who are people saying I am? He wants his disciples to lay out on the table what they've been hearing, what they've been thinking about, what they've been contemplating, and then when they're ready, then he can ask, so they're not just mimicking other people's responses. They put those out on the table, and then he'll ask, who do you say I am? Well, the disciples, they lay out what they've been hearing, and it's the same list that we saw back in Mark 6 when Herod Antipas had John the Baptist killed, and he was hearing about Jesus, and he was wondering, what, as people were saying who he was, one of the responses was, he's John the Baptist, come back to life. John the Baptist was the latest prophet, and so it made sense that this man is doing miracles. Wonder if it's John the Baptist. So some people were saying that's who it was. Others were saying it was Elijah. Elijah is unique among the prophets, not because he, he did more amazing things or said more amazing things, but he never died. He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. And, and in Malachi, it says that there's a prophecy that Elijah will come before the day of the Lord, and so people are saying that it must be Elijah. Others are saying that he's, they're not making quite as bold of claims, but they're saying he's a prophet on par with the Old Testament prophets, where, which were real renowned in, in Israelite history. Well, Jesus, he listens to all these responses. He lets them lay them all out on the table. He knows they've been hearing this and contemplating it, and then he asked the pointed question, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And I can imagine an awkward pause. As people look at the floor, you know, as disciples, they don't want to make eye contact because then they might have to respond and it will reveal what they're thinking. It will be a vulnerable moment. Until finally Peter's like, you are the Messiah. And as the reader, we've read the first line of Mark of the book of Mark, Mark chapter one, verse one. It says, Jesus, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And we think, Peter, you got it, yes. But then in verse 30, Jesus doesn't congratulate him, he doesn't high five him. He says, don't tell anybody. I wanna pause here because it makes us wonder what's going on, why would Jesus Say, don't tell anybody. I want to pause and show you a video, another video from the Bible Project. This is a different video, but I think it will help us understand a little bit more who people thought the Messiah was, as well as put this passage in context of the book of Mark. So let's pause and watch this this video from the Bible Project. The Gospel of Mark is a book in the Bible about the life of Jesus and the earliest reliable tradition tells us that it was written by a guy named John Mark. Now Mark didn't just grab a bunch of random stories about Jesus and throw them together. He's designed this book to address some really specific questions about whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So let's stop right there because that's a term a lot of people like me aren't very familiar with. 
Yeah, so the Messiah was a royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God, that Israel was expecting to come and set up a kingdom here on earth. And around the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome, and so many Jews were hoping that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and rule as king. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. In fact, he was killed by them. And that brings us to the very issues Mark is trying to get at in this book. So in the first half, he focuses on who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? And then in the second half, he's addressing how Jesus became the Messianic king. And then right here in the middle of the book is this pivotal story that brings the two halves together, and Jesus answers both of these questions. Okay, so let's talk about the first half of the book, who Jesus is. So Mark makes his beliefs about Jesus very clear from the first line of the book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. One of the next stories is Jesus getting baptized and God's voice announces from heaven, this is my son. So it couldn't be more clear, it's presenting Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, but as you're reading through this first half of Mark, you'll notice something really interesting start to happen. Jesus is going about healing all these different people, and he's constantly telling them to keep quiet about who he is. This happens so many times in Mark's account, it's very strange. Yeah, why keep it a secret? So remember, lots of Jews had lots of different expectations about what the Messiah would be and do. And so Jesus doesn't want people to misunderstand what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah. And so with all that in mind, we come now to the pivotal story at the center of the book where Jesus takes his disciples away and he asks them, who do you all say that I am? And Peter says what everyone's been saying, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. But then something new happens because Jesus starts explaining to them how he's going to become the Messianic King, and it is not what they expected. He says he's going to suffer and die and rule by becoming a servant, or in his words, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to become a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter is startled by this and he rebukes Jesus because there's no way he's going to let Jesus die. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan, which is really intense. It really is. But it highlights how important it is for Jesus that his disciples come to understand who he really is. And so here now in this pivotal section, Jesus tries three different times to have this conversation with them. And every time they respond in confusion and even fear. Okay, so this launches us into the second half of the book, where Mark addresses the question of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He goes to Jerusalem, gets in conflict with the religious leaders, and gets arrested. And he's put on trial as someone who's claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's even given a crown and a purple robe like a king would get, but it is all a cruel joke. Then he's mocked and beaten and hung up on a cross where he dies. And it's here in this crucial scene that we meet a new character. A Roman soldier. Who suddenly gets everything that's going on. He says, surely this is the son of God. Which is crazy. It's an enemy who's first putting it all together that Israel's messianic king is the crucified Jesus. That's the structure of the book of Mark. But the book doesn't end with Jesus dead on the cross. No. So on the third day, some women go to visit Jesus' tomb, only to find that it's empty. And then there's this angel standing there, instructing them to go and tell this good news that Jesus is alive from the dead. But instead, they run away and they don't tell anyone because they're afraid. And that's how the book ends. 
Which is a really abrupt ending. Yeah, it's so abrupt that later scribes did add an ending that brings more closure to the story. And you'll find that story in your Bible with a little footnote that says it was added much later. But Mark's a brilliant storyteller, and he's intentionally ended this book abruptly. So all through the book, the disciples have been confused about Jesus' plan to give up his life, the story in the middle and now right here at the end. It's like Mark is acknowledging just how startling this claim really is. And he wants you, the reader, to wrestle with it for yourself. Is this crucified Jesus really the Messiah that they've been waiting for? That's pretty good how they put it to, to pictures and, and it's memorable that way. And if you, I know it's very fast. If you want to go back and, and watch that, you can find that online. It's, it's free and available. But the question, is this really the Messiah that the people have been waiting for, is the question. The passage we're looking at is the pivotal passage where Jesus asks his disciples who they say he is. And Peter gives the right answer. You are the Messiah. Unfortunately, Jesus knows that Peter's understanding of who the Messiah is supposed to be is not who he came to be as the Messiah. And so he does what he does all along. Don't tell anybody. He doesn't want to add more confusion. He will reveal at the proper time who the Messiah is and what he's about. But then he goes on and explains to his disciples what it does mean to be the Messiah. In verse 31, he begins to explain that the Messiah, like the, like the video explained, that the Messiah is different from what people expected because people expected a conquering hero. But he says in verse 31 that Jesus must suffer many things and be rejected by the religious leaders and he must die. He doesn't say, I will suffer. It's not just something that's going to happen. It's something that is planned. It's ordained by God. This is his mission. He must suffer. He must die. And that's not what the disciples expected of the Messiah. That's not what he was supposed to do in their minds. And even though Jesus explains clearly that it doesn't end with his death, he will come back, or he will come to life three days later. They don't get it. Peter takes him aside, and he's like, Jesus, this is not what the Messiah is all about. You're not going to conquer by, by being conquered. You, you're going you're gonna to come and lead people to victory, conquer the enemy. It's actually quite presumptuous of Peter. Remember, if you remember, Back in the boat, when Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples were afraid of Jesus. He calmed the storm with one word. This is the same man that, that they were cowering in fear of, but Jesus has the, the audacity to take him aside and rebuke him. No, you don't know. I know better than you. It would be easy for us to think that Peter's lost his mind a little bit here, that he doesn't, that he's, He's just being obtuse or whatever, that he should know better. But how often am I like Peter? How often are we like Peter? How often do we get angry at God because he's not doing what he's supposed to do as God? When was the last time you got angry or thought that God wasn't doing it right? Well, Jesus does something really shocking. 
He gives a stronger rebuke to Peter than he has to anyone so far in the story. Get behind me, Satan. Peter loves Jesus. He's been following Jesus. He, he's, he's thinking the way we would, we would normally think. The Messiah, we know. He's supposed to come and make things right. He's the one that makes all things right. You don't do that by dying. You do that by conquering the enemy. Why would Jesus rebuke him so sharply? Well, Jesus explains what he means. He says, you don't have in mind the things of God. You have the merely human concerns. This is where the story from last week is so helpful to understanding this story and how this is how they help interpret each other because it, the blind man came to Jesus and Jesus touched him and then he said, do you see? And he said, well, I see people, but they're like trees walking around. He didn't see clearly. He, he, he needed a second touch. Peter's been with Jesus and he knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't understand, he doesn't perceive what that really means. He needs another touch from Jesus. What does it mean that Peter has in mind merely human concerns and, and how is this so off base that it's associated with Satan? Part of the problem was that Peter was so entrenched in the way of thinking that he had grown up with that he wasn't ready, he wasn't able, he, wasn't, he, didn't, he couldn't focus on what Jesus was saying, what he was explaining. He, he, as soon as he heard that Jesus was going to suffer, he stopped listening. Jesus did explain that he'd rise again in three days, but I think he had turned it, he stopped listening because you're going to suffer? What? You can't suffer. He can't imagine a Messiah who suffers. That's not how conquest happens. And he also appeals to the human desire to avoid suffering. Nobody wants to suffer. We win by fighting. And in doing this, Peter is thinking in human terms. He's tempting Jesus to take an easier way. And Jesus, he recognizes this, how dangerous this temptation is because it is so appealing to how we're made. We, we are tempted to avoid suffering at any cost and therefore to avoid obedience. And he calls Peter out on it. He rebukes Peter and he tells him to get out of the way because he doesn't want to be tempted and he knows God's plan is so much bigger and so much better. As I've been contemplating this passage, I, I, I really do think the central idea is the identity of Jesus. Who we understand Jesus to be really, really matters. It's, it's the difference between knowing him and not knowing him. It's the difference between being a part of his plan and not being part of his plan. If we understand Jesus to be the Messiah, the one who comes and makes all things right, the king before which all creation will one day bow down, then there's consequences. Our priorities have to change. We have to be willing to admit that we need the healing touch of Jesus to have in mind the concerns of God. Otherwise, we're only going to have the concerns of humans. We have to be humble and admit that our way of thinking is still so human. 
And we need him to help us focus on God's concerns. It also leads to the question, what, what are the ways of thinking that are focused on human concerns more than God's concerns? Peter was concerned about suffering and avoiding suffering. I think we're all like Peter. We want to avoid suffering. But Jesus tell us that, tells us that following him will involve suffering. We'll get to, into that a little bit more in next week's passage. But if our goal is to avoid suffering, if that's our number one goal, if we come to Jesus in order to have less suffering in this life, if we come to Jesus to, to make all things better for us in this life so that we can be all happy and stuff, then, then we have in mind the concerns of humans, not the concerns of God. It isn't that Jesus wants us to suffer, but he knows that the path to godliness involves suffering. Other ways we have in mind the things of humans more than God is when we pursue things that make us happy and as our number one priority, making lots of money, trying to plan the best vacation, seeking the most pleasure or the most comfort, getting the most likes on social media. When these things become our priorities, we have in mind the things of people over the things of God. God's priorities, the concerns of God, are goodness, love, mercy, kindness, care and concern for other people, the good news of Jesus, and that people are invited into it, acts of mercy, recognizing people's pain and acknowledging it. As a church, it's easy for us together to be more focused on human things than the things of God. It makes sense, we're humans. It's easy for us to remember back to a time we felt good about. Maybe a certain event or a group that we were a part of and we long for those glory days and we think if only we could be back then, if we only could have that. The amount of people attending church, whatever it is, we look back and we, we felt really good about ourselves and if we could only get back to that. It's common for congregations to be more concerned about how we feel when we're worshiping, how we express our worship, than what God might be inviting us into now. What's God calling us to focus on that he's concerned about? The spread of his kingdom in the world, in his community that we're part of. The mind of God is that we're known for our love and our unity and our self-giving care and concern for people especially people that don't know him. He went out of his way for them so that they would be invited in. He knows what our needs are as a church in order to be his hands and feet, and that's our goal. That's our job. That's our mission, to be his hands and feet. We are his representatives in the world. And when we prioritize being the kinds of people that he wants us to be, people on mission, as, Jesus, as Chris talked about a little bit earlier, he'll provide what we need. But when we focus on what we need and what we, th- what we feel, and then those things become more important than the mission, 
we're thinking about human things more than godly things. We prioritize the wrong things. It's easy for us to criticize Peter. But I think Mark is challenging us to recognize ourselves in Peter. We are just like him. We have in, thing, we have in mind the things of humans rather than the things of God. We, we rebuke him for it sometimes. And the reality is we're going to struggle with this way of thinking for the rest of our lives. But Jesus never wavered. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He kept the priorities of God and the concerns of God over human concerns, even though he could be tempted by them. So as we struggle to keep the right priorities, we gotta keep coming back to him. He carries us through. He transforms our minds. He produces those desires for godly things over human things, slowly over time. Just like he took time for that blind man and it took him a second touch, it takes Peter a second touch, Peter gets it later. We will slowly get it more and more. But we need Jesus. The invitation this morning is just to contemplate. Who do you say he is? We've, we've talked a little bit about what people think he is, but who do you say he is? And how are your priorities reflecting that? Let's pray. Jesus, you you astound us more and more about who you are. You you could have come and conquered the enemy and, and brought the Israelites back, but you came and and you suffered. You're not just telling us to go and and do your, your work. You did it, and you invite us into it. You are, you are, you don't hold anything back. You don't tell us that we won't suffer. You tell us that we will, but you suffered more, and you promise to be with us, and you promise that the end result will be way more than worth it. God, I, I don't like to suffer. I try to avoid it. So I need you, and we need you, and we pray that you would help us to trust you through the suffering rather than trying to avoid it. That you would give us more and more the mind of Christ, the mind of God, more than the concerns of, of humans. And thank you that you are patient and you are faithful and that you care about us and you care about the people around us. So help us to be more and more in line with who you are and what you're about. Help us to really understand who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.